And uh, this week I was updating my passport. I didn't realize that it expired uh, last month. And it was uh, interesting when I got to the section of gender, it was the first time on a government document that I saw male, female, or X. We're living in a time, church, where there's an undeniable assault to blur, to blur truth to a monotonous gray, right? A monotone gray. And think about it. Five years ago, we're talking about the roles of men and women in the military. Two years ago, we're having a discussion about race guilt and the need to ask forgiveness for your melatonin, for your particular skin tone. And now we're having a discussion about what a man is biologically and what a woman is. Five years. To complicate these factors as of recent, you know, from the spring of 2020, when we were coerced into our home for the longest 15 days of history of man, right, to flatten the curve, most people took to social media to stay connected. And the result was like what happens when any dysfunctional family gets stuck into confined spaces for long periods of time. The conversations got utterly ridiculous. True? It's kind of like being in a station wagon with broken AC packed in there with eight people on a long trip, right? Everybody gets really selfish and cranky. And then adding insult to injury in all of this in such times when the church of Jesus should be standing as a stalwart beacon of truth. Many evangelical churches and leaders were using their media platforms to say, quite frankly, really dumb stuff and making truth really obscure. When people really needed truth, the church was hemming and hawing about it. And all of this has led to wholesale confusion everywhere. And we see it, true? And we're feeling the pressure of it. What is truth? What is really true? Now the good news is, many people are asking, what is really true? We have a great opportunity to stand in the gap as salt and light and to answer that question. And in order to do that, it's vitally important, right church, that we know what God says. That's why we're doing this series on foundations. Because one, we need to know who God is for ourselves and ground ourselves So that, therefore, then, we can help other people to point them to His essential foundational truths. We've talked about this as as elders. It is essential in our responsibility to make sure all of us are equipped 
with four really important things. One, that we grow in our love for God, that we love God together. Two, that we're able to approve what is excellent. We're able to see not just black and white, but we're able to see variations. You know, 1% of rat poison is actually the part that kills you. Right? But we're able to see the part of things that are mostly true, that we can approve what is excellent. We need to be able to do this. Love God. And as a result of that, to approve what is excellent. And then not, not just be something we say, but that we be pure and blameless in our own lives, that we be able to live according to that truth, that our character lines up with the truth that we're speaking and the truth that we are approving. And then to be filled with fruit, in other words, to be living out actions consistent with such. It's really important. It starts with truth. And do you guys remember where that list of essential qualities comes from? It's a trick question. Do you remember? It comes from Paul's prayer to the Philippians. A lot of times I've, I've got you guys all broken up to days of the week, and I pray for you and your families, and when I'm doing that, if I don't know what to pray for you, this is what I pray for you. I pray that your love may abound more and more, that you'll be able to approve what is excellent, that you will be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness for the glory of God the Father. That's a great prayer. You can pray that for me if you don't know what to pray. But guys, knowing what is true is found in this prayer for the church from Paul. It's essential in our culture today that we're able to do these things. Yeah, you with me? And we're not the first generation of God's people, obviously, to face cultural difficulties, right? We're not the first generation where godlessness runs rampant. We're not the first, and actually we're not the worst generation, where cultural wholesale and emphatically rejects God's truth, or goes against His design, or ignores His counsel. For thousands of years this has been going on. It's a cyclical pattern. Men resist the counsel of God and there's a remnant of His people that hold on to it. It's always true. And, and team, do you know what that teaches us? It teaches us that what God said from the beginning is absolutely true. Cling to me, live according to my truth, live out my design, and you will live. You'll last. War against me and you will break yourselves on me. This has been true forever. If you live to yourself and your temporary wisdom, your life and your legacy will die with you. And so that's why we've landed back in the book of Genesis. Where's Nick and Jordan? They're not here. They're all sick. 
Okay. We land back in Genesis. In the beginning, God created. Beginning, God created. This is the foundation and the source of truth. Cultural standards, values, mores, they shift and change with time, with whims. God's foundational truth is forever. You see in this? He exists. He lasts forever. He rules. He defines truth. He sets standards. We adjust to Him. Not Him to us. In returning to uh, Genesis, as we've discussed, we have found the purposes of mankind. We organize our lives around Him. We've been realizing that we know truth from lies, right from wrong, because, again, God is. He set everything up in the beginning. And because He has clearly told us what truth is. And we've said this multiple times. And once a person or a community untethers from this reality that God is truth and that He has spoken it to us, that all knowledge, all morality, all identity, all law, all order, all purpose, all sanity, all salvation, all hope is completely and utterly forfeited. And that's exactly what we see in Genesis chapter 5 through 7. That's exactly what has happened in this narrative. And so today as we look at Genesis 5 through 7, the account of Noah, a time when culture and its reaction to God's truth was way worse than we're experiencing now. It was. This story, church, stands for us as a reality, as a beacon of hope that says God's word always stands. And you haven't seen the worst of it and you're going to be okay. And so today, I want us to work hard to get past the story of Noah and his ark as a Sunday school painting on a wall. I want us to get past it being a little fluffy, fuzzy, what do you call those things that hang over kids' cribs? A a mobile. We want to get past it being a little mobile that hangs over a kid's beds. And you know what else we need to get past? We got to even get past the size of the ark, how many animals fit into it, how they got the dinosaurs in there, how they fed them all, what they did with their poop. Okay, We've got to get past that today. Those things are okay. They're not that bad to talk about, but it's not the point of the story. And sometimes we can get so hung up on all these details that we miss the redemptive reality of what God is trying to get us to understand. Noah and Cain are compared to each other in this unfolding, this story. We're supposed to know some foundational truths from 
from the reality of laying apart Cain, which we did last week, and what it means to have a heart like Cain that resists God. And then we're also supposed to see this heart of somebody who has not a clue, nary a clue about what God is doing, and yet he still obeys. And we're supposed to see the outcome of their two lives. And also, that regardless of Cain or Noah, both of them, the unrighteous and the righteous, both of them still need God's redemptive vessel in order to have a relationship with them. Okay, so here is the summary statement for all of what we're going to be talking about today. So if I lose you, don't miss this. Here's the summary. Believe in faith and trust God's truth and His design and you will receive rescue or salvation. It's the point. Believe in faith. Trust God's truth and His design for all things. Trust that. Organize your life around that. Build, your, build all of your values and principles on that. And you will be rescued. You will be saved. Now, here's four points that we're going to... So we're kind of going to do like an overview of Genesis 5 through 7. Kind of like a... What do they call it? Not a paraphrase, but a... There's a cooler word than that that I was hoping to use, but let's go with summary, okay? But it's a summary. Here's four points that we're going to see. One, we are called to believe and obey the Lord in faith and humility. Two, we should know that there are long-lasting generational consequences, both positive and negative, resulting from, from whether or not we heed number one. You with me? So the first one is, we're called to believe and obey the Lord in faith and humility. That there is long-lasting generational consequences resulting from either our heeding of God's truth and design and counsel or for forsaking it. There's, there's generational consequences. The third thing is, we will see a holy, righteous God who is always infinitely, wisely, and justly Bringing judgment upon sin. When sin enters his presence, it will be judged. It's a law of the universe. There is no way around it. It's not as if God can turn his judgment off and on. Sin enters into his presence and it immediately is judged. Are you with me? We talked about this several months ago. Something gets close to the sun, it gets burned up. It's not because the sun is mean or unkind. It's just the nature of the sun. Something gets, sin gets close to God, it burns up. It's not because he's a jerk. It's because of the nature of his character. So we'll see that, that we'll see as a holy, righteous God, he always brings justice to sin, and we want him to innately. True? Somebody goes to court and their family member is brutally murdered. You wouldn't want the judge to give that murderer a pass. True? You want justice. We want justice. We just get mad at God because we don't like the way he does it. But then the fourth thing that we'll see here in this passage is that we can respond to the Lord 
who is always providing salvation and rescue from both giants and judgment. And we'll get into the giants part as we get into the passage. So those four things, those four principles we're going to see. So last week, like I'd mentioned, I taught on what it means to have a heart like Cain's. So if you're in your Bible, just open back up to Genesis chapter 4. We're going to back up a little bit and then get a running start at 5, 6, and 7. And Cain's life and legacy can best be captured in perhaps one of the saddest passages in all of Scripture. Look at Genesis chapter 4, verse 16. Remember, this is after a, a conversation where the Lord is counseling Cade, pers- Cain, not Cade, thank God, counseling him to turn. He's resisting. Then he blames God. Then he's angry at God. And verse 16, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. He's a wanderer, but his physical condition is only an image of his spiritual one. You with me? It's not so that ba- it's not that so much that bad that he's wandering physically is that he's wandering spiritually. Why is that? Because he's disconnected from what? From everything that's true. From the very God who says, here's what's true, Cain. Submit to it. And he says, no, I'm going to do my own thing. No truth. And all he can do is wander. That's the worst part about Cain's condition. Listen, once a heart of Cain refuses to respond to God's counsel, his truth... Once a heart of Cain refuses to submit itself to his design, once a heart of Cain is left to wander without direction, once a heart of Cain no longer has a home to go back to, a place to rest, once the heart of Cain is fit to do as he pleases, literally all hell breaks loose. And that's what we see happening. Now look at the... Next couple of verses, go back in Genesis 14, or 4, 16 and 17. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and he settled in the land east of Nod, east of Caden. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and gave and bore Enoch. And when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. Now let me ask you this question. Where did Cain know his wife, and bear his son. Yeah. Physically, he was in the land of Nod. But here's the important part. Spiritually, he knew his wife and had his son apart from the presence of God. That's his worst condition. And the result of that reality, the fact that he now has a wife and he bears a son and he is a wanderer, he is completely disconnected from truth and has no God to return to, the reality 
the consequence of that is then captured in the rest of chapter 4. So let me recap for a minute. Cain was at a crossroads. He was angry at his brother. He didn't like God's way. God offers him direct loving counsel. He shares both the benefit and the consequence if Cain should choose to go one way or the other. He provided Cain with both the power and the opportunity to choose. And Cain still resisted God's counsel. And Cain's children and his grandchildren paid the price for his decision. My American friends, those of us who have been raised in a culture of independence and autonomy and isolation, let's not fool ourselves to remember that we tend to view the gospel through that lens. But we must get over ourselves. Hear me. Your sin does not just impact you. When you're considering sin, you ought to just stop thinking about how miserable it makes your life. You need to be thinking, how is this going to impact my grandchildren and my grandchildren's grandchildren? Because the reality is, our choices impact generationally. That's a true, that's a truism all throughout scripture. It's only as Americans that we see, wow, how does this impact me? Can I get around this? Could I, could I edge around this? Could I still make this work? Could I? It's not about you. It's not about me. When we resist the truth of God, when we go against His design, when we pursue things that are against His counsel, it impacts generations to come. But likewise, when we live according to his design and we heed his counsel, our children's grandchildren reap the benefits. Now, why is that true? Because we were created to be eternal beings living with God forever. You following me? Is that logic clear? We were created to be eternal. We're created to do things that last. That's the image that we are created in. Again, marred and broken, distorted, but that's still what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to do eternal things. So when we live into temporary condition of Cain, and we resist God's eternal perspective, and we live temporarily... Everything we do dies. It blows away. Sin doesn't last. Meaning, God will one day kill all of it. The only thing that we do that lasts is those things that we do that's tethered in eternity. And so when we live in Him, when we're consistent with His truth and His design, and we live into our eternal identity, our life and our legacy lives on eternally. 
be saying, well, you sound like you're contradicting yourself, Rob. You're saying sin lasts, righteousness lasts. Well, I'm, I'm saying at some point in time, sin is ulti- it does last until it's judged and then it's over. But it will be accounted for. It doesn't just disappear. God kills it and it doesn't last. And we were made to do things that last. And so when we connect with this reality and we live when we do things because God is our God and we're aligning with him, even small, mundane, everyday things, it matters. It literally matters for eternity. This is why Paul says to the Colossians, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything giving thanks to God the Father. Do everything because it lasts This idea of generational impact of our choices is one of the messages of Genesis 6 and 7. So by the time we get to Cain's fifth great-grandson, Lamech, he is singing songs about his grandfather's, great-grandfather's resistance to God and how his, Lamech's, vengeance is going to be greater than God's. Look at Genesis chapter 4 verses 23 through 24. Lamech said to his wives, plural, by the way, this is the first time we see polygamy in the Bible. He's doing his own thing, just like his grandfather did. He said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Who... Who was it that was revenging Cain? It wasn't Cain, it was God. And so the translation actually here is, he's singing, this is, a, this is written in a song, and essentially what he's singing is, if Cain's rebellion is sevenfold, my rebellion is seventy-sevenfold. And I'm not paying for it. That's the heart of the generational sin of Cain that was left unturned. And then all of a sudden we're into Genesis chapter 5. This is the book of generations of Adam. Now we're back to Adam. Now we're going to be talking about another son that was born to Adam and Eve and his name was Seth. And from this line came Noah. So all of a sudden we move from the story of Cain and his descendants and we end with this real jerk to say it mildly, right? And then we automatically transition. We're supposed to connect the two stories. It's not like now we're on to something else. And we're supposed to connect and compare. Now we have, have another person whose name is Noah, and he's not evil, he's actually righteous. In chapter 6 then, so chapter 5 is a connection point. Here's Cain's history. Now we move through Seth. These are the sons of goodness of God. These righteous line comes through and we end up with Noah. Chapter 6, verse 6. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Verse Chapter 6, verse 9. 
Noah is, was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah walked with God. So there are long-lasting generational consequences resulting from our, the, either our heeding of God's truth and design or forsaking it. And so now we've seen the two first points that I said that we were going to cover. The first one is, we are called to believe and obey the Lord in faith and humility. We should know that there are long-lasting generational consequences resulting from either our heeding God's truth, design, and counsel, or forsaking it. So those are the first two points, and we just covered those. Now we're going to continue moving through this Genesis overview, and we're going to see the second and the third are the third and the fourth points. It was hard. I was trying to like break it down and make every point fit, but they blend together. It's hard to do. So if you're following what I'm doing, I'm saying, here's an overview. Here's the two main points. Now we're going to do another overview. Don't miss these two points. The two points are God judges sin, but he also provides a way of salvation. Now, the beginning part of Genesis 6 opens with this really perplexing section. And so, I've thought about not even spending any time on it, but it's come up so much recently, and there's a lot of confusion on the internet. And then also, if, we, if you really study it, there's some really good principles that come out of this first section. So I'm going to read it, and then we're going to talk about it. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for his, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So this question is, who are the sons of God and the Nephilim? They're referred to here in Genesis 6 before the flood and we're told in verse 4 that they also existed after the flood. And we're also told that they are so kind of superhuman, that they are the source of many different kinds of legends. There's four primary views as to who these sons of God or Nephilim were. Okay, so I'm going to just kind of give you a quick overview, then I'm going to give you my semi-committed view, and then we're going to pull out the principle, Okay. There's strengths and weaknesses to each of these, but the first view is that they are actually fallen angels or demons. This is actually the historical position that uh, has been held throughout Judaism and even the early church. So these fallen angels have manifested themselves physically and they're interacting sexually with humans and producing this superhuman race called the Nephilim. Another position is that they're actually fallen uh, they're they're fallen angels that are manifesting themselves spiritual they don't have their own bodies but they're possessing we would know it as demon possession they're possessing man and then those men possessed by these demons are interacting with 
sexually with humans and producing this race. The third view is that it's actually these sons of God are from the line of Seth. They were godly men from the line of Adam through Seth that they would have been kind of like spiritual siblings with Noah, but they were turning away from God and now marrying pagan women. And then the last view is that it's just straight up fallen men. And so is just talking about guys who were just really bad jerks and they were they appeared so uh, broken and they were interacting with women and having completely godless offspring. Now there's a fifth view, and this is the one that's getting a lot of attention in books. Somebody handed me a book like this a couple of months ago, and I didn't even mention it because I'm going to tell you this as your elder. This is a warning, but it's called the alien view. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you though, it's con, if, if it's consistent with not only Here's why you need to avoid it, because there's two realities. One, evolutionary biologies like Richard Dawkins are even nodding towards the fact that we were placed here by aliens. Now, when we come to things like this, there's also all this alien talk. I'm just telling you, it's an absolute and utter distraction. Stay away from it. I'm warning you. This is primarily, this alien view is primarily taken from the book of Enoch, which wasn't included in the canon for a reason. It is a book that has a lot of Jewish tradition in it. So historically, not a bad book to read historically, but also Paul warns us emphatically to stay away from Jewish tradition, which is what the book of Enoch is. And so I'm just telling you, I'm warning you, as somebody who loves you, don't mess with it. It's a waste of Yours and my time. It's complete speculation and it's a distraction. Now here's my view that I loosely hold. Okay, Because like I said, each of these views has strengths and weaknesses. But because of the context and the flow of the narrative. And then also I would add what comes after it later in the book. I lean towards the view that these are the sons of God. They were godly men from the line of Seth who were being corrupted by their attraction to godless pagan women. And I think this view best supports the main point, what the point is trying to make that we can take out of all of this, and I want you to walk away with, is this. Even the most godly people on the planet were being completely corrupted by sin. That's the point. So whoever these sons of men were and whoever these Nephilim were, they were completely being corrupted and there was nobody left that was even close to being righteous except for Noah. You with me? And mankind was so deeply corrupted in every way that the flood as a judgment was absolutely necessary. This isn't just God having a bad day. It was even godly people were being completely disrupted and were seeking after the heart. If your heart follows God, 
Why are you seeking somebody who follows pagan things? You're blending your hearts together. It doesn't work. And so later, when you get into not intermarrying, I actually believe that is rooted here. Whether or not any of that is true or you like my opinion, regardless, you don't have to like that opinion. That's thus saith Rob, thus thinketh Rob. But what the Lord said is this, 6 verse 5, 11 through 12. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of his thoughts and his heart was only evil continually. Verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their, their way on the earth. And church, this is the fruit of a heart of Cain. That's the point. And we can't miss that one. And here's the principle for us. With these giants, these big men and these Nephilim and these sons of God. Here's the point for us. Our greatest threat in our lives. The greatest giants that we stand against. Is not the Nephilim. It's our own lack of faith. Our lack of belief in God's way. Our lack of adhering to God's design. That is our greatest enemy. And if you get stuck on these giants being from outer space, what you're missing is your own heart. And the point of the passage is, do not have a heart of Cain. There are generational consequences. Hear and heed God himself. That is your worst enemy. Are you with me? Are we seeing the importance of this passage? Think about it this way too. Any giant that appears in the Old Testament moving forward serve to only uncover fear and a lack of trust and faith in the heart of God's children. You with me? And every incident, and we're told, like I said in 6.4, that these big guys lived after the flood. Every incident of their appearing, the answer or the antidote to the giant wasn't knowing as much about the giants as possible. The antidote for giants was knowing God and what? Believing Him. And then God supernaturally, through little tiny wimpy people, like David, 14 years old with a sling, then David, then, then God supernaturally overcomes the giants. True? There's no one story where they got together and they figured out who these people were. And now that we know them really well, we can take them out. The point is the opposite. The giants exist so that only God can do this. That's the point. We can't go into that land, Lord. There's giants in there. Obey me. And they go in and he takes them out. That's the point. Our greatest enemy, church, is the heart of Cain. For you and for me. And let us make sure that we pay attention not to allow the heart of Cain to grow in us. Yeah? You with me?
And so again, this point of the sons of God intermarrying with pagan women is part of this narrative that's going to great effort to show us how profoundly rampant sin was. And the judgment of the flood was absolutely deserved. It was necessary and it was also merciful. And so God announces these plans to Noah, verses 13 and 14. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. And then in verses 15 through 21, God details how the ark is going to take shape. So here's the plan. He tells it to Noah. I just read for you kind of the summary. And then God details that out for all the way through the rest of the chapter. And then verse chapter 7 verse 1 begins this way. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. And then from verse 2 on through 14, it's the account of who Noah was to take into the ark and how they were going to do it. It's this big, huge, miraculous um, filling of the ark. And so as this section concludes, it ends with this summary. Look at verse 15 and 16 of chapter 7. Then they all went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. So in contrast to Cain, who is a wanderer, you have Noah, who is a captive in a rescue boat. Noah, Cain is all over. Noah is confined, but he's rescued. In contrast to Cain, God provides Noah counsel with very little explanation as opposed to Cain who got quite a bit of explanation and Noah obeys. With no concept of rain, no concept of big open water, no clue as to what a ship was or why it was necessary Noah obeys. Chapter 6, verse 22. Noah did all this. He did all God commanded him. And then the author of Hebrews in the New Testament looks back and says, By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the Righteousness that comes by faith.
And church, this is what we are to know. That we're to live by faith even when it doesn't make sense to us. And when we believe and we live by faith in God's truth and His values, we are saved. We are called to believe and to obey the Lord in faith and humility. When faced with counsel from the Lord, we will either obey in faith to God or disobey in faith to ourselves. True? You will either find excuses or you will find solutions. You will find ways to disobey God or you will find ways to obey Him. It's your choice. And God made that clear to Cain. Cain found excuses. Noah found solutions. We should know that there are long-lasting generational consequences that result from our decision to do these things. I've told you that we've been talking about this as a family. What does it look like for us to carry on the legacy that has been handed to us? Meditate on that. That is encouraging. That we are passing down and our obedience matters. Not just for generations, but for the kingdom. It matters. And we will see constantly a righteous God who always infinitely, wisely, and justly brings judgment to sin. Remember the lie that Satan told Eve. You will not surely die. Yes, you will. God must judge sin. But also, He is so gracious and kind, He could kill every bit of sin, but He always provides a way of escape. He always provides an out, a plan of redemption. No temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not tempt you beyond what you can bear, but He will provide a way out. Our faithful God has to judge sin, but He always gives people an opt-out. You don't have to face judgment. That comes from stepping in, and I will close you in. The next time we get together, we're going to begin our work through the book of Hebrews, because this sets us up perfectly to say, there is a Redeemer, there's a Rescuer, there's a boat. We get in something, and we're saved. Then we pass through the waters, and we find... uh, Uh, relationship with God. We get in Christ. Christ is the superior way of salvation. And that's what the book of Hebrews is about. So as we get together next time, we're going to be working starting in Hebrews chapter 1 and talking about the reality that Christ is the superior salvation. And church, we are in Him. Let's joyfully live into it. Father in heaven, we thank you for your great kindness to us, for calling us to be like you, to providing redemption, and for allowing us to be in you and to escape the coming judgment that you have warned us and warned us about. We thank you for providing Christ, and we're thankful to find ourselves in him. 
May we turn from the heart of Cain to a heart that pursues you. And we thank you for giving us this power through your spirit whom you have called us uh, to yourself through. And by making it possible by the work that Christ has done on our behalf. Amen.